You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 15th of December. First up on The Agenda today, we took a look at the new technology that could be fitted onto US cars as standard in order to stop people from driving under the influence. Is it something that we could see here in the UAE as well? We spoke to road safety expert Phil Clark. Meanwhile, the world's first AI-generated news channel will launch in 2024. But what does it mean for fake news? What does it mean for trust? Channel One founder Adam Mosen joined us on the programme. Meanwhile, Dubai Airport is anticipating its busiest day of the year on December the 22nd. So if you are flying home for Christmas, how can you avoid getting caught up in queues? Issa Al-Shamsi, Vice President of Terminal Operations at Dubai Airport, gave us the lowdown. And it was on. And then it was cancelled, and now it's on once again. Will the much-hyped three-and-a-half-year-long cruise finally lift anchor? We spoke to the man in charge, who says it will indeed in May next year. Plus, after a quick post-COP cleanup, Expo City will reopen tonight as Winter City. We got the lowdown of what exactly will be on offer and why you should take your children down there this festive season. And new research suggests that cats are killers causing havoc in the ecosystem. The study author warned us we'll never look at our pets the same way again. And our sports editor Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest football news. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right, I can assure you that right now, in fact, the voice you're listening to is indeed me. Uh, although um, I need to clear my throat slightly, but that, maybe that's an indication of uh, that, it, that I am a human being with, with failings. Um, and I am live right here in the Dubai Eye studio. But soon there is a sense that that could all change. There is more than ever... A real feeling, I think, in the news and journalism community um, that the sands are shifting because the world's first news network created entirely by artificial intelligence is set to launch next year. Hello and welcome to Channel One, a new way of consuming, reporting and thinking about the news powered by artificial intelligence. Today, you'll witness AI-generated stories and headlines, captivating visuals and data-driven insights. From global news to finance to entertainment, we'll show you how technology enables us to bring you a global perspective 24-7, right from the heart of our AI-native newsroom. Now, that reporter certainly sounds to be human. If you watch the video, she certainly appears to be human. But actually, she is entirely digitally generated. And all the news stories that she mentions there are suggested and written and created because they're visual by artificial intelligence as well. So how should we feel about this? Well... According to our regular guest, the ethics and tech expert, Professor Rob Sparrow, we should be worried. Healthy democracies need informed citizens and so they need high quality news services. Outsourcing the selection of stories to AI, as this media company proposes to do, strikes me as being a terrible idea. Letting people curate their news in the same way as they curate their entertainment risks further widening the political divisions that we've seen develop as the result of the rise of online news services. We need to be investing in reality, not fake news. 
Okay, let's find out a bit more about this Channel One because a little earlier I spoke to the founder, Adam Mosam, who explained how their newsroom will work. We are not 100% AI. We are AI native. So we have humans in the loop. We have human oversight at every stage of our newsroom process, but we're leveraging this technology to make it efficient to the point where we can create more news than a traditional newsroom. So it comes into play everywhere from story research, understanding trends, in some cases, creating the news all the way out through the presenter, reading it out on camera, so to speak. So you've actually got an algorithm choosing what stories to cover. That's interesting. We have an algorithm suggesting what stories to cover and a human editor deciding. And how will the algorithm pick stories? You know, who's, who's the designer of the algorithm, so to speak? We have three different categories of sources. The first is partners. And this is where traditional news networks also get their news. People like Associated Press and Reuters and large global agencies like that, as well as some smaller partners and some more cultural news and things like this. The second bucket of our news is going to come from stories that we create. And we create those stories, not as fake news or out of thin air, but we create these stories using reputable first-party data sources. And that could be anything such as a company press release, an SEC filing, uh, sports scores, things like that. And then the third and, and potentially most exciting bucket of our news coverage will be launching more toward the end of next year, but it will be coming from a network of independent journalists around the world. And because of the technology, we can understand any language as well as speak any language. And we hope to be able to bridge people and to bring people closer to the stories they're interested in with that network. Now, as a news editor, one of the requirements for your job is that you need to balance the need to make your stories entertaining enough that people are going to want to read them. But equally, you need to make sure you're staying to the truth. And there are so many different ways in which you can present truth, some of them more entertaining, some of them more clickbaity than others. Sure. Do you feel any level of concern that an algorithm or AI might not have that same human judgment? Sure, of course. And I think this technology is going to be, I mean, it's ultimately misused by somebody, but we're going to do our best to have the responsible use of technology and responsible journalism at the same time. The watchability aspect of our programming is going to come through our news anchors. And if you can use the word personality, it's important to, to note that it's not just a, a very thin interface layer of some digital avatar speaking out certain words, that each of our journalists and our, our reporters, our presenters, our anchors, were attempting to make them much more three-dimensional. They would have their own personality, their own backstory, their own opinions, their own memories even of things that they've reported on before. And with all of that combined, it gets closer to someone that you could connect with, even though they may not be a, a real human being. I mean, maybe it feels more dystopian because I'm a journalist, but how are they going to trust your news anchors if deep down they know they're not real? And therefore, how are they going to trust what the news anchors are saying? Because so much of believing the news is trusting the source. I can tell you uh, in the US that Americans trust in media as referenced by a recent Gallup poll is at historic lows. 
and major networks have become more polarized. And, you know, in some cases, even proven in court where they are reporting things that are false. And a lot of the sort of support and, and feedback that has come to us has been that people are looking for something that is unbiased and they feel almost that they may have a better shot of being informed by an unbiased source. So I think there's an opportunity to create something where we could pull from a traditional and proven source. We have technology to unbiased sources as well, which we've been trialing and we're working on in the lab. And I believe we'll be able to put out a product that people will come to trust. And ultimately, trust is earned. We have to show up and do a good job and speak to people truthfully, honestly, and understand that we are going to be judged more harshly than anybody else because of the approach and how Linux is created. I have to say, I feel very encouraged by the idea of unbiased news. Whether or not an algorithm can create unbiased news is, is also very interesting indeed. I suppose you might think of a, a computer being more dispassionate than a human being. Although I have to keep reminding myself that obviously the algorithm was created by a human being, uh, ultimately. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit more about the personalization that you're hoping to bring in to your yes. provision. That's actually the entire point of the project. When we look at this, we're not trying to create computer news for the sake of it. We're doing it because everything else that you're seeing on your television has been going through an evolution. If you think about where we were you know, 20 or 30 years ago and you were watching broadcast and then you were watching cable and then digital really started to appear and it really offered choice to the user, it would understand who you are. And whether you're watching Netflix or TikTok, consumers have gotten used to a certain level of personalization in what they consume. And for news, because it is timely and because it is expensive, major networks have to take a, maybe an ideological stance or appeal to a certain base of their audience and create programming for them because the entire country gets that same two hours of primetime news. They may make 20 or 30 stories in a night. With us, we can think about creating 500 or 1,000 stories in a day and then figure out what are the right 10 or 20 stories that you might like. And that could be your favorite sports teams and report on that. It could be the companies that you're watching from a business perspective, maybe what stocks you have in your portfolio. It could be the parts of the world that you're most concerned with. So the goal really would to create the largest cache of news on the planet and then be able to output that in almost every major language. And uh, there's a promise of a very interesting product that we can, we can iterate toward with that tech. Do you feel any concern that this personalization could just lead to echo chambers where people are only seeing the news that they want to see and they're not hearing any other views? <clears throat> so there's two points to make on that. The first one is we're hoping to avoid the social media trap. And one of the key differentiators there is that with social, I can post an article or I can write a blog post or just write a comment and I can say, you know, I looked outside and there was an elephant flying past my window and, and you could like that and my friend could share that and it could go viral and all of a sudden the algorithm picks it up and everyone thinks there's an elephant flying outside. Because we're starting with a set of discrete facts, we won't cross that barrier into what people would traditionally call fake news. But more importantly, if you think about how an algorithm is constructed, there is two ways to do it. One way is to let the computer drive 
and just feed you what we think you're going to want to see on an ongoing basis. And that is something that some products would do, such as TikTok to some extent. With us, there's a mix. There is curation involved. So there will be stories that will go wide. There will be uh, stories that we present to you that we have a high confidence that you are going to like. And then there will be some stories that we do not believe you're actually going to like that we will insert in your feed because the only way to really understand you is to give you a wider selection than what you've already been seeing. And of course, there is the way the responsibility of reporting the news where we do have to inform you about what's going on. We will maintain that sense of curation to make sure you do get a balanced diet of information. That is Adam Mozam there, the founder of Channel One, that new artificial intelligence-based newsroom where every single element of the news is controlled or at least created by artificial intelligence. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here. And we're actually going to turn our attention now to a story that originally came out of the United States. But I think it really resonates here for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because we import quite a lot of our cars from America. In fact, I think mine's an import. And also, obviously... Um, like in every single country, uh, people, particularly around the festive season, might be tempted to drive under the influence. And US car makers could soon be forced to prevent that because they could soon have to adopt new technology in their vehicles that would actually stop the car from starting if the driver was in some way intoxicated. Now, it's all coming out of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and they say that they've begun the process to force the adoption of the technology. As long as it works... Hmm. So is it something that we should adopt here? Well, we spoke earlier to Phil Clark. He's the technical director for 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants. And I asked him whether the tech even exists yet. Some of it does exist, yes. I mean, there's been a thing called Alcalock. I think it's probably a brand name, a manufacturer's name, which has been out for a couple of decades now, I think, which was something that people voluntarily fit to their vehicles. And you basically, it's a breathalyzer test linked to the ignition system, and it just prevented the car from being started. So that kind of still exists. And I think there's other technologies that are being developed, things like cameras that detect eye movements, and they can, from that, there's some kind of algorithm that gives you an idea whether somebody's driving under the influence or not. And there's also technology that can detect alcohol through the sweat, so touch technology effectively. It's early stages for most of those. And the problem you've got with them is developing something that's incredibly accurate and reliable, because obviously, as, as the U.S. study has already shown with the number of journeys undertaken in the U.S., if you had something that was 99.9% reliable, you're still going to have 1 million false positives. That's 1 million journeys that somebody can't take because the technology has said no. Yeah, that uh, would really annoy you, wouldn't it? If you well, were actually well under the limit and the car just said it, you can't go, that would be a nightmare. It would. And, and I think the problem in the U.S. is a very litigious society. So 
if you had people who needed to undertake a crucial journey, you know, a doctor who needs to visit a patient or somebody who's running a business or something like that, any kind of loss, I think, would result in, in litigation against the manufacturer. And I think that's something that they've got to be really careful about. And that's why they're saying that they've set this, I think it's November of next year, the deadline for companies to come up with options on different technologies that meet the threshold of the reliability and accuracy. Essentially, what we're looking at here in most of these things is some kind of early concept which they need to develop. By throwing it out to these companies, it's also a way of engaging stakeholders in some form of consultation. So you're dipping your toe in the water as to whether it would be socially acceptable, politically acceptable. Has this idea, this sort of technology, been discussed quite a bit in the past in different countries other than the United States? It's been going on for a good couple of decades, I think. The whole idea was you came up with technology that would prevent people from ever being able to drive a car under the influence because the car just wouldn't start. It comes back to the fact that there's nothing being developed that is sufficiently accurate. And there's other problems with it as well, because countries have different limits. I mean, for instance, the UAE is zero. England, Wales, Northern Ireland and the US are aligned at 0.08. Scotland is 0.05 and most other countries around Europe, it's 0.05. So if you're going to spread the technology internationally, it's got to be something that can accommodate all those different variations. Now, you've got a lot of knowledge about safety on the roads here in the UAE. You have access to lots of figures that we don't necessarily get to see. Is driving under the influence a problem in this country? Is it more of a problem maybe than we might realise? Yes, I think it probably is more of a problem than people actually realise because everybody assumes it's a, you know, it's a Muslim country, there's not much driving under the influence uh, occurring. But actually about 14% of all the collisions can be attributed to people driving under the influence, which is a significant proportion. And, and I, I don't know the figures because I haven't ever seen them distilled down. But I would strongly suspect that if you look at the very the most serious and the fatal collisions, that percentage probably increases. Now, certainly in the UK, for instance, driving under the influence accounts for something like about 30% of the fatal collision. Why is it so dangerous driving under the influence? Quite simply because everything about your judgment and your reaction time is, is impaired. It's slowed down. You're not thinking as quickly. Your perception of things is distorted. You just lose that cognitive ability to be sharp and, and and to deal with situations as they arise. You're thinking you're doing things properly, but actually you're not, and everybody else can see you. Do you think that the type of technology that they're suggesting in the United States could work here? I mean, many of the cars that we drive here in the UAE are actually American imports. I think actually I'm driving one at the moment. I think my car is one. There's an opportunity there. But again, you come down to the fact that most countries have different standards for the vehicles that are sold within their country. And the UAE certainly has its own standards for vehicles. But these things are all added at cost. When you have an anti-lock brake system put in a vehicle, it, it costs more than not having it. These sorts of technologies, because they've got to be so reliable, they're not going to be cheap. So I'm not sure whether it would work, because I think it's also difficult to retrospectively fit this equipment to vehicles. But I'm I'm not sure whether or not the UAE would have the appetite to equip it. And I'm not sure any country would until they've seen it actually properly uh, implemented, trialled, tested and, and seen how it's worked out socially as well as from a, a legal perspective. Are there 
easier, better ways to persuade people not to drive under the influence. I mean, we've seen a series of campaigns. Certainly when I was growing up in the United Kingdom, there were annual campaigns, oddly enough, usually around this festive season to encourage people mm. not to drive under the influence. It, are, there, are there signs that those behavioural campaigns work? Yes, there's plenty of evidence to suggest they work. But the problem is it takes so long for driving under the influence, but in excess of the limit in the UK. It took about uh, 25, 30 years from the time that legislation was introduced to the time where it actually became socially unacceptable to drive under the influence of alcohol. So that's a long, long time for things to, to filter through. And there will always be a hardcore of people who, no matter what kind of campaign you, you do, what kind of enforcement and what kind of sanctions you have, a hardcore of people who still carry on driving under the influence because either they don't care about the consequences or they don't think they're going to be caught. So it is effective, but it takes a long time to bed in. Phil Clark there, Technical Director of 4E Road Safety and Transport Consultants. Uh, interesting questions raised there. Would you be happy if your car could make that type of decision for you, you know, whether or not you were allowed to drive it. Now, of course, uh, on the subject of driving under the influence, there's no sort of question marks around that. But what if it could read whether or not you were too tired to drive, for example, thinking about how hard everyone's working at the moment and people potentially getting late nights? You know, what if your car basically could make that decision, probably due to artificial intelligence? You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, welcome back to your Friday morning agenda show. Now, you might remember a few months ago, we told you all about a three-year-long cruise that was due to set sail this year. And in fact, we even interviewed the team from Life at Sea Cruises. But that has now been cancelled because they didn't manage to secure a ship, which you would have thought was sort of the first thing you do but but you know I, I'm not I'm not out there organizing cruises so who am I to judge uh, but a new startup now involving some of the team from that original plan uh, have set up a new company and they are offering now an even longer trip that actually sets sail in May next year now earlier I spoke to Mike Peterson he's the founder and CEO of the new company which is called Villa V Residences and he told me that we shouldn't be thinking of this cruise as a holiday it's not really three and a half years it's just that we have only mapped out the first three and a half years of a continuous world cruise so we're a never-ending lifestyle more so than than a cruise so comparing to previous projects we offer two ways to buy a cabin and that is you can either buy a cabin for as little as $100,000, or you can pick and choose the segments that you want to go on and, and then pay as you go. So we've only mapped out the first three and a half years. And it's largely because we want to match our itinerary with current world events. For example, we're planning on being at, in midsummer in Sweden, and we're planning on spending the full days at Rio Carnival. So is the general gist with your new venture that people will essentially live aboard forever. That's right. That's right. This is a, a lifestyle and it, it is meant to be a permanent lifestyle. And so at the moment, you've got that three and a half years mapped out so far. When you said $100,000, is that just to buy the cabin outright in the same way as That's you right. would buy an apartment? That's right. So, it, or I would compare it 
to buying a boat or a yacht more so than an apartment. But yes, so you buy for, we guarantee, at least 15 years. And then on top of that comes the operational uh, expenses, right? So you have food, you have fuel, port costs, you know, and, and various variable expenses that come along with going around the world. But yes, for 100000 you would own the cabin. You can do as you please with it, come and go as you please and bite who you want. And so what type of facilities are you going to be offering on board? So it's a little different from a traditional cruise ship. We want to make sure that people stay connected to friends and family. And so we have a business center on board with offices and workspaces so people can conduct their work on a regular basis. We have high-speed internet with Starlink and and the new Viasat 3 that's coming out to make sure that people can dream appropriately. And then we've set aside 35 cabins for friends and family where people are able to invite their friends and family for free for up to two weeks at a time. To us, it's very important to have that ability when you're going to be you know, gone for effectively a long time or permanently, that you have the ability to invite your friends and family to come visit you. What type of people is this appealing to? I mean, you only just launched. Have you had interest already? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had a ton of people from various other projects that that have been similar to ours. But generally speaking, we have a third of digital nomads slash business owners, and then a third pre-retirees, and a third being retirees. The current age is around 58, and we expect that age to go a little lower as we get closer to launch. And once you are on board... How much do you expect overhead to be on a sort of daily basis? So say you sign up to essentially live on board for an entire year. What would be your overhead costs in in that situation? So if you buy a a cabin for $100,000, your maintenance fees for two people is $3,499, so $3,500 a month. Uh, So call it $1,750 per person, which is fairly comparable to rent. And when you consider your transportation, your travel, your food, your entertainment, you know, as well as your home and ever-changing backyard all being included, it's quite a value proposition. It sounds incredibly appealing to me. I love being on boats. Tell me about the countries you're going to visit just in the first two months of the trip. So we're, we're starting out out of Southampton. And we're going to be doing 87 days in Northern Europe. And we're going to take advantage of the peak of summer, go through the Baltics and the Norwegian fjords and head over to Iceland, where we're going to end that segment. And then from there, head over to Greenland, Canada and come down to Miami. Are you ready to go on a cruise? Because I'm ready to go on that one. It sounds absolutely heavenly. Um, three and a half years just to start with. Can you imagine literally going, you know, so what are you planning to do for your retirement? I'm planning to travel the world for the rest of my life. I would be so up for that. Um, That was Mike Peterson, the founder and the CEO of Villa V Residences, uh, making us all dream of a little longer than a week off. (laughs) Would you sign up for it? Welcome back to the show. Right, I have a question. How many of you are planning to fly home for the festive season?
course, here, it isn't just people sort of flying out of the country. Much of the traffic through Dubai International Airport is actually people flying in for holidays and to see loved ones. Certainly, we never go home for Christmas. We always we always end up with a house full of people who have decided that, you know, to sun, a festive season in the sunshine is infinitely preferable. And as a consequence, Dubai airport officials are warning of something of a festive season rush. And they're saying that it's going to kickstart today. Joining me now to give us a sense of just how busy the airports will be is Issa Al-Shamsi, who is Vice President of Terminal Operations at Dubai Airports. Very kindly joining me on the line on Teams on the beginning of the festive season. Issa, thank you very much indeed for your time. Tell me, how busy are we talking? How many passengers are you expecting over the next couple of weeks? You're most welcome. It's uh, it's exceptionally busy especially during uh, the peak hours we're expecting around 4.4 millions in the coming weeks uh, you're talking about an average uh, of over a quarter a million guests every day during the next 15 days of course some of the parts of the airport will be busier than others depending on the day uh, of the week and the hour it's a tremendous channel as usual however i'm pretty uh, confident that we are all prepared and ready for it okay so are these passengers who are coming to dubai for a holiday are they people who are leaving the country or are they transit passengers now the 4.4 million includes all departing arriving and transfer passengers however uh, in the initial period, uh, it was a departure peak resulting for the rush, uh, as you know, of residents flying out for the school winter break. And, uh, you know, with Dubai firmly establishing itself uh, as one of the most preferred destinations in the recent years, uh, we, attract a lot, we attract a lot of uh, visitors throughout the year, but especially during winter. And a big, uh, and a big chunk of that uh, traffic is during uh, this season peak will be mainly from this category, flying to make most of their holiday. What day is the busiest day, do you reckon? Uh, it's starting today to the f- to, to the next 15 days. Uh, this coming weekend is going to be uh, heavy. And uh, the, 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 the biggest, I think, uh, wave is going to be on the 22nd, 23rd and the 24th. Now, if you are travelling through the airport, what can people look forward to seeing? I mean, I know I've already had an email from Emirates Airline promising me that if I happen to be on a flight over the Christmas period, I can get a festive meal uh, on the plane. But how about before you board the plane in the airport? I mean, it's it's always uh, uh, smart, you know, uh, to plan ahead, you know, keep an eye on the road situation, uh, be on time and make the most of, you know, of the cool stuff that we have available, like the early check-in uh, uh, and those, you know, speedy smart gates that we have at the passport control. Uh, on the same note, you know, uh, a quick shout out for, for people who are not traveling. Uh, we, we kindly request them, you know, to use different routes, you know, to give way for people who are trafficking and reduce the congestion on the airport road, especially during these busy hours and busy days. And is there actually, do you hold sort of festive activations in the airport? You know, am I going to come around a corner and discover a group of uh, carol singers, for example, or uh, festive food? Uh, of course, we've got a bunch of fun, uh, you know, stuff lined up uh, uh, to some of the excitements of the airport guests. But uh, you know what people really love at this time of the year, as you just mentioned, it's the festive vibe that fills the entire airport with joy and cheer. Uh, It's like the holiday comes to the life, I I mean, comes to life right here at the airport. Yeah, I have to say, I think a lot of for a lot of people, uh, the holiday starts the moment they check in their bags. And I know that you guys do have that facility now. You can actually check your bags in without, you know, without even having to go to the airport. Is that right? Yes, yes. There is an off-city check-in in in DIFC at uh, Brookfields. And there is another city check-in, which is in Ajman as well for the uh, Northern Emirates.
So I guess top tips for the season, plan ahead, leave extra time, all the usuals. Yes. You know, we always advise passengers, uh, people to say their goodbyes at home, you know, because at these uh, busy periods, we only allowed, you know, ticketed passengers to the, the terminals to reduce the congestions inside. Do you know, I remember you saying this exactly this time, <laughs> two years ago. And I remember saying no crying at the airport is banned. No crying. So do that at home. <laughs> Yes, cry at home, please. <laughs> cry at home. It's my favourite line of the festive season. Isa, always a pleasure to have you on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time. I wish you, um, well, I hope you get some relaxation over this festive season. Uh, but that is Isa Al Shamsi, Vice President of Terminal Operations at Dubai Airports, with his, uh, his I suppose it's his classic line of uh, cry at home, please. Uh, no big goodbyes at the airport because it clogs it up. Uh, but always a pleasure to speak to Isa here on the programme. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. And uh, we're turning your attention to a neighbourhood that's been getting a lot of attention just recently. Um, Because, yep, we spent pretty much most of the last two weeks down at Expo City. And it's safe to say that the site was sort of somewhat dominated in recent weeks by the arrival of that historic COP28 conference. Now, there were a lot of changes made on site in order to uh, make that sort of safe and secure. Uh, So you would have thought the clear-up operation would take a bit of a time. But... In a festive makeover effort that would put any Hallmark movie to say to shame, the site is actually going to reopen later today as Winter City with a series of sort of eco-friendly events to celebrate the holiday season. So I presume there will be a giant Christmas tree, uh, but let's let's find out a few more details with uh, Kate Randall, who's executive producer of events and entertainment at Expo City Dubai. Now, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the line, Kate. Uh, I know it's a very busy da- day down there with the doors opening uh, for the festive season. But, but I suppose, first of all, I'd love to know how you managed to get that site turned around quite so quickly. Yes, good morning, Georgia. Thanks for having me this morning. We're super excited to welcome everybody back uh, to Expo City Dubai for Winter City. As you say, we've had a a super interesting and very busy uh, last two weeks, but the elves have been working overtime in the last 72 hours to to turn the site around and and get us ready to open the gates uh, for Winter City at three o'clock this afternoon. Fantastic. I mean, that that's a note for my diary this afternoon. The kids obviously uh, off school. They've already had one week off extraordinarily. So what is actually going to be going on down there for the next three weeks that, that would keep them entertained? Well, we do indeed have a giant Christmas tree, as you suggested earlier, uh, which is looking absolutely beautiful. We did a bit of testing last night and it's looking uh, amazing. So we're going to be turning the Christmas tree lights on at 545 uh, this afternoon. So Santa, Mrs. Claus, uh, all the elves and some, you know, gingerbread men will be around to help us do that. So we're hoping to see lots of people from Dubai uh, with us for that celebration this afternoon. But in addition to that, Opti is back this year helping uh, Santa lead uh, the sleigh. So the kids will um, be able to come down and see Opti, which we know they love. 
Uh, also, um, lots of, I guess, festive food options, lots of market stalls for those last-minute Christmas gifts, uh, and lots of workshops for the kids to participate in this year as well. How are you um, ticketing it? Can, can people just stroll in or have you changed the, the format slightly? Yeah, slightly changed this year. We are ticketing the event. So um, all the tickets are available on Platinum List for people to buy in advance, but they're all, uh, they can also buy tickets when they arrive down at the gates. Um, this year, it's just 20 dirhams for entry uh, to Winter City. We're hoping to see lots and lots of people around. Uh, sustainability parking is the best for those driving out to the site um, to make their way to our Wassel Plaza. Uh, and also, of course, the metro is available uh, down our Wassel Avenue for people arriving um, by the metro. So is that 20 dirhams for an adult or, or for a child as well? 20 dirhams is for an adult ticket. Children under 12 and people of determination have free entry. It's being billed as an eco-friendly Christmas. I believe even the naughty or nice lists have been given something of a green twist. How, well, I mean, it's sort of obvious why you've decided to go for that post-COP28, but how have you managed to make it eco-friendly? Yeah, I guess we've been all been really inspired by the discussions and the talks and the sort of outcome of, of all of the meetings of COP28 that have been happening on site in the past couple of weeks. Um, and so... We're, we're all on board with it. Santa, the elves, Opti, everybody is is sort of turning to this to try and, um, I guess, provide those lessons, help the kids become more sustainable and eco-conscious. Um, we're, we're using a lot of sustainable and eco-conscious materials. Uh, a lot of the build for our winter city uh, will look familiar. We've actually used a lot of the pieces for the last three years at winter city. Um, so it's all about reuse and recycle. Uh, in the workshops for the kids, though, there's a lot of, I guess, great sort of educational and learning opportunities. The Letters to Santa activation, um, for example, we know the kids love to come down uh, to Expo City and write their letter to Santa and post it in, in the big mailbox. Um, so there'll be lots of sort of conversations with the elves there um, about what they're asking for and, and teaching the kids to become more um, eco-conscious. We've also added this year... Um, I don't know if any of the listeners came down during COP and were able to visit the Expo City Farm, but we're partnering with that team um, and creating Frosty's Farm uh, activation for the kids. Um, they can come make reindeer food and take home uh, with them. We've also got festive planting options um, and lots of uh, sort of STEM-based, I guess, um, toy-making activity in the toy factory. So lots of different opportunities for the kids to take part in. It sounds absolutely awesome. I have to say, I went down and saw the Expo Farm a couple of days ago on the final day of COP28. I was very impressed. Whoever is the uh, the chief gardener down there, uh, I have never seen such neat rows of vegetables in my entire life. Uh, but very impressive stuff. Kate Randall, thank you so much for joining me on the line today. I know it's a very, very busy day indeed. Um, you are executive producer of events and entertainment at Expo City Demai and well worth heading down there this afternoon. If you're looking for... Um, a way of kickstarting your festive season. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. And now we have a story for you that is going to make you look at your pet cat in an entirely different way because it turns out that they're actually prolific 
predators, killing literally thousands of species and eating even more, including hundreds that are of conservation concern. And that is according to the first ever study to quantify exactly what felines are eating on a global scale. Now, a little earlier, naturally, I wanted to find out more, you know, being an owner of of the cat waffle. Um, So earlier, I spoke to the lead author of the paper. His name is Christopher Leipzig. He is an ecologist from Auburn University in the United States. And he started by explaining how they carried out their research. Our focus was to really find everything ever written about what cats are eating that we could verify in the literature. And so that included peer-reviewed journal articles, doctoral dissertations, government reports. And we took a fairly conservative approach of just trying to see what people had found in these studies. So it was close to a two-decade process of kind of slowly building this and then really finding a time at which we stopped and said, We probably have something interesting here and is enough, but it certainly is not everything. And what did you discover? How many species are our friendly feline friends killing? So our our analysis and our database is really what cats are eating. So some of those species are certainly ones that cats are scavenging. So we, we know that cats are eating them, but to say they would kill them is very difficult. So we do know that there are quite a lot of the smaller animals um, most certainly are killed by cats. And it's not until you get probably to the larger ones that they're either eating a juvenile or they're scavenging. But the breadth of it with over 2000 species we found is really unexpected. I mean, and these are whole species. So we're not thinking about subspecies um, or populations, which, um, you know, like in the United States, we have a lot of subspecies of beach mice and they're all under one species. So we only count that once. And if we looked at a subspecies, it would be even greater. But, you know, as we found in our paper, kind of every time we look and found a new paper in it to add to our study, we would find new species. And so, you know, our estimate of over 2000 unique species would be considered conservative. And we expect that there probably are a lot more species we would find in regions of the world that we haven't looked at or in ecosystems we haven't really studied. And so probably means there's a lot more. Is it concerning? I think most of us think of our cats as not having a very big impact on the ecosystem they live in because they're domesticated. Cats are are like many issues in conservation where when you look around and kind of see what's happening in your own backyard or your own city, small items don't really seem to be impactful, but it's that scale that we often as humans kind of struggle to think about is that, you know, if every cat in the world just ate one bird or one mammal, even just once a week or once a year, and we have a million cats, you know, that's a million birds or a million small mammals. So I think cats are a great example of, we as humans love cats and and we've moved them all around the world. And they are great companions, but, you know, we don't often think about what they do to the environment because it's probably something that's a little bit out of mind. And, you know, I think for a lot of individuals, you know, if they happen to see that a cat has killed one small animal, it may not register as that important. Do you think cat owners should do something about it? Well, as a cat owner myself, I, I keep my cats indoors and, you know, that's a very important thing that we all can do. Um, And not just for wildlife, but really for their own health benefits. Indoor cats 
have far less likelihood of having diseases or parasites. They live longer. It's also important to consider spaying and neutering our cats and considering microchipping them. And licensing is always a great idea in that we know how many cats there are. So similar to what we do with dogs, and it would all come around to, I think, being a responsible pet owner matters a lot. And, you know, we, we really would like cats to have people that love them and, and want them to be around for a long life and get the full enjoyment that they can out of that individual. Do you look at your own cats in a slightly different way now you've done this research? I'm certainly going to go down and look at my cat Waffle (laughs) slightly differently. Yeah, you know, I've had cats for most of my life from when I was a little child through today. And, you know, starting when I was in graduate school, you know, I encouraged my mom who had an outdoor cat to move indoors and she did. And when I became, you know, a cat owner, we've always had indoor cats. And, And I think this was an issue that, you know, conservation science and wildlife science wrote quite a bit about in the 1980s and 1990s, and it kind of then disappeared as a, as I would say, a topic that we need a lot more study. And it was a bit settled that cats are eating animals out in the environment. So we should encourage them to be indoors. And I think a lot of conservation scientists actually started doing that. And so, you know, many of us in the conservation community have cats and we love them dearly, but we keep them inside and it's not a difficult task for us to do. Christopher Leipzig there from Auburn University in the United States, who's done that extensive research on the number of species that cats kill. I have to admit that despite his urgings, I I quite like the fact that my cat gets to go outside. I don't think I want to keep him indoors, poor chap. I think he has more of a life going out and about. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Sports time, and I think we should have something of a drum roll, please, because this is Chris McCarty's last sports news update of the season. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Friday weekend almost upon us yet again. Plenty to get excited about in the coming days. Before we preview all of that, though, let's look back on last night's Europa League action. And, well, I start by congratulating Brighton and Hove Albion, their first 40 into European football, and they finished top of their group. A 1-0 win over Marseille at the Amex Stadium last night. João Pedro with the only goal of the game coming late on as well, just a couple of minutes from the end of the regulation 90. What it means for Roberto de Serbi's men? Well, it means they bypass the playoff round, and that is then now automatically into the last 16 of the Europa League. I said at the start of the season, they would be dark horses for this competition due to the way they approach their matches. They're a fine footballing side. And I'm telling you now, no one, when the draw is made next week, will fancy uh, Brighton and Hove Albion, it's fair to say. The other big story of the night, I guess, Glasgow Rangers. They had to go to Spain to take on Real Betis. They've come away with a 3-2 victory. A famous, famous victory for the Jairs, Philippe Clement, their new manager as well. That is a massive shot in the arm. They've closed the gap on Celtic domestically in the Premier League. 
Premier League, owing much to that shock defeat for Celtic last weekend to Kilmarnock. But Rangers going to Spain and winning big. We'll have the Rangers fans dreaming of that wonderful run to the Europa League final a few seasons back, of course, where they were beaten in the showpiece match by Frankfurt on penalties. So, yeah, Rangers top of their group to a group that featured Spartak Prague as well as Rael Batiste. That was a tough group. They've come through it and they will now bounce into the last 16 of the Europa League as well. So that's a couple of big stories from last night's footballing action. In terms of this weekend, well, there is a fixture later this evening. The Premier League getting underway in earnest. It is Nottingham Forest taking on Tottenham at the City Ground. That one kicks off at midnight and then that kick starts another massively busy weekend. Manchester City, they're in action against Crystal Palace at home. You'd expect City to bounce back after um, more recent disappointments. Okay, they won at Luton last time out, but it was far from convincing. All eyes, though, on Sunday. There's only one big one. No, it's not Arsenal Brighton as much as I'm looking forward to that. It's Anfield. It's Liverpool against Manchester United. It's an 8.30 kickoff on Sunday evening. Manchester United returning to the scene of arguably their biggest ever crime. Liverpool 7, Manchester United nil. It was back in March. How do I know that? Well, I was there, Georgia. It was the worst first afternoon of my life. Every time Liverpool poured forward, they scored a goal. United, they've got their injuries, they've got their suspensions, they're on to a hiding to nothing. Eric Ten Hag is a man under pressure. He's embattled. Reports in the last 24 hours that Sir Jim Ratcliffe, the Ineos boss who will take charge of 25% of Manchester United, including footballing operations, that he is eyeing up my old mucker, Graham Potter, a man who was unceremoniously dumped by Chelsea back in eight April. His name is echoing loudly around Old Trafford as a potential successor to Eric Ten Hag. He's got to start winning football matches. It's as simple as that. Does that happen on Sunday 8.30? I've got my doubts but I am a glutton for punishment. I'll be tuning in for it. Liverpool against Manchester United. So that's a couple of the big stories to keep an eye on this coming weekend from a footballing standpoint. Georgia, I'm just delighted that it's the weekend. We can take a couple of days off and then of course off script back on Monday with a returning Robbie Greenfield will be with us. A man who became a father last Friday to two beautiful twin daughters. He's back in the hot seat Monday and Tuesday in my absence. I'll be back with everyone on Wednesday. I believe Georgia, the musical chairs begin at ARN. So whether you're at business breakfast whether you're on holiday just want to say i wish you and your loved ones a very very merry christmas and a happy new year and i'll catch up with you on the agenda in 2024 yeah indeed so i will be presenting the business breakfast alongside tom urquhart next week sonal rapani will be presenting the agenda uh, for a couple of weeks and uh congratulations of course uh, go to robbie greenfield i didn't know we were allowed to say it on air yet but christmas comedy's done it first so a uh, huge congratulations to robbie and his lovely wife on the birth of their two girls uh, two girls just born just recently uh, beautiful names i don't know if i'm allowed to say them on air yet so i won't um but yeah massive congratulations go out to robbie <laughs> The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.